hey, get your act together and be a little afraid about it because, by the way, God's going to get you if you don't. If that's not what he's saying, then why the fear and trembling? Well, let me ask you a question. Those of you who are Christians, not everyone here, but those of you who are, how are you doing working out your salvation? How are you doing living out the, the life of Jesus in the world right now? How are you doing reflecting the image of God into the world. We doing great? We're like killing it. Like I'm doing awesome. My guess is if you're thinking that, you probably don't really know what that means. And so what he's saying is go, live out, work out your salvation, work out of this salvation into the world. And we're going to talk more about what that means, salvation, in a second. And doing so, understanding that. This is, I'm not doing this perfectly. And then he follows this up. Right? He follows this up with the next verse. Before we get there, let me deal with the salvation. Because it is very easy at this point to get, to get wrapped around this word salvation and forget exactly what it means. For many of us, especially if you grow up here in the valley, to be saved, to get saved, has to do with being made right with God. Right? Yeah. Right? That's not it. That's part of it. But that's not all of it. Okay? Being made right with God is what we would call theologically. Okay? So this is a theological term. Your theology not just clue in right now. We call that justification. Being made right with God is your justification. That's part of your salvation. But it is not all of it. There's other parts to your salvation, too. Sanctification. That's the theological term meaning to be made more and more like Jesus. Glorification. That is literally like being transformed in a resurrected body, unable to sin anymore. That's part of your salvation. In other words, salvation is a whole person, whole life orientation that takes you from being uh, an enemy of God to reconcile with Him and living as the new creation. Okay? So to work out your salvation is not, it, what he's not saying is earn the right to be made right with God. He's saying go work out this completely new life orientation. Because you were not just saved from sin, you were saved for something. You were not just saved from sin, death, and hell, but you were saved for a new life turned outward, oriented back outward towards God and others. This is what he's saying. Go and live like this. Work this out. So again, I'm going to ask, how are you doing? How's your whole life orientation towards others? Completely loving. Completely not seeking your own flourishing, but only for those others. Doing great? Work it out with fear and trembling. And then he follows it up with this. Look down at verse 13. Because there's a power associated with this. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, the calculus of this is a little hard. So listen close if you can. Paul is saying that the power to work out your salvation, to live in that new orientation, to have a completely, uh, to, to live a resurrected life in the world right now, does not come 
from you. That in fact, it is the work of God. And so here's again, why here at this church, we're very clear. The gospel, the message that Jesus alone rescues us, that he, he, he works in us when we are enemies of God, he transfers us, he takes us in, pulls us out by the power of his spirit, unites us to himself. But that is not just about getting into God's kingdom. That is not just about getting yourself justified. It is about all of the Christian that God's gracious rescue of you is not simply what happens at the beginning of your Christianity. It is what continues throughout it. And that He is the one working in you. When you get up in the morning and you, you're praying and you say, you say, God, please help me to love my coworker today. Please help me to, to love uh, that kid who sits in the row in front of me today because, man, they're a pain in the butt. And, and you go and you, it actually happens that day. That was Jesus. Working in you. Now, why is Paul saying this? After he's saying to work this out with fear and trembling, he's saying, listen, you need to live out this resurrected life. And that power is not in you, which leads us, can lead us to despair. Right? It can lead us to go, I, I, I can't. I just can't. Then Paul is saying, don't worry. God's power is at work in you. And you want to know what the one thing you can be sure of is God's will for you? That you become more and more like Jesus. I can't say whether or not he wants you to buy that car or marry that person. I can tell you, he does want you to become more like Jesus. And so he will be at work. Right? This is the gospel. This is not just getting into the faith, but living in it as well. The, the Protestant reformers had these, had these uh, what they call the solas, right? Which is Latin. So if you want to sound really smart, you use the Latin. But if you, if you want to know what you, you're talking about, then you use the English. It, it was basically that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And there's the one for God's glory alone, okay? And so that's really awesome, again, you want to sound smart, you use the Latin. Uh, but again, the word sola is Latin for alone. It is about that alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Right? But saved means, means more than just being made right. That's just justification. It means everything in the Christian life comes as the free gift of God. You want to become more like Jesus? It is not because you put in your sweat equity. It is because you're trusting in Christ to do that, seeing how the gospel is transforming you, and then going and living as if you believe he's actually at work in you. And Paul's saying, don't worry, he is. It's his will. It is, and so what Paul is saying is that you're doing this knowing who exactly is at work. When you are working, it is God working. The same work. It is not your effort, your upbringing. It is on the free grace of God alone. And so keep depending on that. But how? What's that to look like? Okay. I'll go work it out. What does that mean? A lot of us have assumptions on what that means, right? 
My guess is, is that most of those assumptions have to do with a moral posture. Work out your salvation, meaning keep your nose clean. Work out your salvation, meaning get your theology straight. Work out your salvation, meaning sinless. Work out your, right? What is Paul going to say? Let's look. Because this, what follows this, will tell us a lot about what Paul wants most for this church. Look down at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. There it is again. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Alright, let's stop here. Let me tell you, uh, grumbling and complaining is not what I would have gone with. Okay? I'm not sure any of us would have. That's not what we would have kicked it off with. Because it does just sound like, you know, the Sunday school teacher in other churches, not here. The Sunday school, like, don't complain, right? That's what it sounds like. And so, but actually, this is not at all what it means. And here's where the story of Scripture connects. Because if you were Jewish, or you were steeped in the Old Testament, when you saw the word grumbling, it meant one thing in particular. And it brought your minds back to one thing in particular. Because God's people have been known to be grumblers in the past. I don't know if you knew this. I know you all aren't. We're all great at it. But there was, there was this thing, especially in the, the story of God's people coming out of Israel, coming, or coming out of Exodus, out of Egypt, and wandering in the wilderness. And they're wandering in the wilderness under Moses, and after they come out of slavery, they've been slaves for generations, for 400 years, and now they're free, and they're in the wilderness, and they're like, I don't know. It's freedom sinking. I don't know about this. I mean, we're out here. There's no water. I want water. You know, if God really loved me, he would have given me water. So God gives him water. You know, I know we got water. And then there's this, like, honey cake that falls every day. Oh, yeah, 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 that's sweet. But you know what I really miss? You know what was great in Egypt? Meat. I want me some meat. Like, and they're grumbling, okay? And, but it's not simply when you're grumbling. Grumbling is not simply about... Um, complaining. It's not simply about being dissatisfied. Grumbling in the Old Testament is about doubting God's good heart for you. It is believing that God led me into the wilderness because there weren't enough graves in Egypt. He brought me out here not because he has good plans for me. He brought me out here to kill me. He is evil. In other words. He brought me here because he is wicked. And I can't trust him. You know what that feels like, right? It's exactly what happens when God is not moving at our speed. When you're, when you're not getting exactly what it is you want. For some of us, that can be something really heavy. Right? Like he's making us wait on that new purchase. For some of us, it's not so heavy. For some of us, we're going through trial. We're going through a struggle. And what we're doubting is that this struggle is going to have any good result in our lives. And in fact, the reason why he's doing this is because he hates me and just wants me to hurt. That's grumbling. That's complaining. So when Paul is saying to do all things without that, what he's not saying is, quit, you know, if your food's cold, stop telling mom that the food's cold. Eat it, shut up and eat it. That is not what he's saying. I mean, don't do that. 
But that's not what he's saying. Give your mom a break, all right? Or dad, depending on who cooks. What he's saying is, in the midst of your life, as you're working out your salvation, remember God's good heart for you. That his heart for you is good. It is not for your ill. In other words, what he's not arguing is that you're saved by a good attitude alone. Right? You want the Latin for that? No, but do you? No, I won't do it. Yes, sir. Solus bonum habitus. Okay, there's your, there's your Latin. Alright. What he's talking about is not that. Okay? And here's how we know. Because the next thing he says is, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Okay? Again, this could be easily misunderstood. That you become children of God by not complaining and grumbling. That's not what he says. He's not talking about becoming. The doctrine of adoption, which is another one of these kind of theological categories that we don't often think about, that we should think about more. This is a great thing. This is how you become, you, you become a Christian, you're united to Christ, and you are adopted. You go from being enemy, not to just be okay, from being enemy to being a child of God, child of the King, awesome God, awesome belief, all over the place in the New Testament. What he's talking about is not becoming this, because most of the time, when in the New Testament, we're talking about uh, being children, what we're not talking about is something simply uh, positional. We're talking about something that is about bearing a resemblance. It's about bearing a resemblance to your father. That you'll look like him. Or even your older brother, in this case. That you'll look like him. And so, when you bring these things together, what Paul is saying is, keep becoming more and more like Jesus, day by day, knowing that this is actually God's will for you, and so because it is, He is at work. And, and trust His good heart for you. And as you do that, you will bear the resemblance of Jesus in the world. You will bear His resemblance in the world. Well, how will you do that? Keep reading, okay? Put down the rest of that verse. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation amongst whom you shine as lights in the world. That word blemish is important because a blemish is something, and, and I can say this as someone who, who grew up with plenty of them when I was in uh, middle and high school. A blemish is something that takes away from your appearance, right? Blemishes are things that, that mar our appearance when we talk about our blemishes. And so a blemish ultimately is something that we are, and, and here's the other thing about blemishes, you're embarrassed by them, right? It's something that we're embarrassed by that is taken away from our appearance. And this twisted and crooked, when he's talking about you're going you're gonna to shine like lights in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation, when he says twisted and crooked, he is not simply talking about morality. What we're talking about here is not just simply people who just can't get their stuff straight. He's not just talking about those bad people out there. 
In fact, I don't even think that's, that's most of it. And this is the big mistake most of us from religious backgrounds make. If you're from a religious background, Christian or not, this is what you tend to hear. When you hear twisted and crooked generation, that's what you hear. But Jesus actually speaks against that because he says, in, in one place in the Gospels, a beautiful passage, he says, listen, he's talking about people thinking that what they do, in particular in this case, um, what, what they eat without their washed hands, that that makes them unclean. But that makes them wrong. And Jesus says, don't you understand? All that stuff that you do, that you think is so awful, it comes out of your heart. That you do all that stuff because your heart is bad. It's not that you do that stuff and it makes your heart bad. It's that your heart is bad and therefore you do that stuff. Being a twisted and crooked generation isn't about you, all these people out there doing the bad things, voting the wrong way, uh, like living with the wrong people. It's not that. It's that there's something twisted in here. And that twistedness is then producing all of these things. The same things that it tends to produce in us. It's a problem of the heart. When he says this generation, he's talking about not like a particular He's not talking about that. He's talking about in the, the world that we live in. Right? In the midst of what we are currently living in. He's talking about the fact that they are twisted and crooked in their posture towards God. That it is a, a problem of nature. It's a problem of the heart. There, we, are, we are bent away from God by nature. You know this. I've, I've told you, we talk about this all the time. That every person is bent away from God by their very nature. That our problem is not primarily in behaviors, it's primarily a matter of the heart that we, we sin because we're sinners. That's, that's our issue. And so he's telling this church that what I want you to do is to shine like lights in the midst of that. Now, this is not the first time in the Bible where you would have heard something about shining like a light or being a light, Christians being a light, right? Jesus talked about it. Jesus talked about it in a way that got usurped by our political discourse, right? City on a hill. Like that has to do with Christians. Christians, churches, like the church, right? The city on a hill. It's not the first time. But before we get to exactly what that means, let's follow the logic of this. Keep becoming more and more like Jesus. Depending on him and knowing that that's God's plan for you. And that he is at work. Trust in his heart for you. Know that as you trust in his good heart for you, you will bear his resemblance by bringing light into darkness. Here's the thing that all of us know about light and darkness. When something is dark, it is not the dark's fault. Right? You go into a room at night, the lights are all off, you stub your toe, you don't start screaming in the darkness. Right? I don't want to know what you're saying, but it's probably not in the darkness. You go into a dark room and you flip the light switch on, nothing happens. You go, dang you, darkness! You're upset because the light didn't come on. Right? A dark room is dark because the light isn't shining. If the world around you is dark, it's because the light isn't shining. Because the light isn't shining. 
And he says that as you do this, you will bring light into darkness, which means that, look at me, bearing the family resemblance, becoming more like Jesus, means bringing light into darkness. With me? Lastly, Paul sees this as coming from the Word of God. Look at verses 16 to 18. He says this. Holding fast to the Word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. When he says Word of life, he's being very specific. He's talking about the gospel, right? Of course, that's God's word, but it's a particular way of reading God's word that sees. Like, you, look, just because something is biblical doesn't mean it's Christian, because you can read the Bible in a certain way. You can read the Bible in a certain way that completely misses the entire point of the Bible. That's why when Jesus came back, he was, he, he was resurrected, he was walking on this road, and he shows up to two people, two guys who were his followers, by the way, and, and they're sad because Jesus had just been killed. And, and they're talking about all this stuff, and they're like, we thought he was going to come redeem Israel. And he goes, guys, foolish guys, let me explain to you. And it says the beginning from, the, from Moses and the prophets, and he spoke to them on all the ways in which it concerns him. In other words, he taught them how to read the Bible in a way that showed the full story of God the gospel. And so the word of life is the gospel. And he's saying that as you hold fast in this word of life, then you will be lights in the darkness. And then he says this crazy thing. He says that being a light in the darkness, not simply being a church in the, in the middle, huddled up, but being a church that's out bringing light to darkness will be for Paul the measuring stick by which he judges what he did and how well he did it. He says, so that on the day of Christ, which is the day that Jesus returns, because he's like, I'm never going to see you guys again. But one day, we're all going to stand before Jesus, and on that day when Jesus looks at the Philippian church, and they have been lights in the darkness, and he says, well done, good and faithful servants, Paul will go, yes! And the pride will well up in him because he's like, that's my boys and girls. That's what I taught you to do. And if not, we'll go, ah, it was all in vain. It was all in vain. Everything, all the time we spent together was in vain. The implication for Paul is that his work with them all of the preaching, all of the teaching, all of the, uh, you know, healing. In Philippi, we know that he cast out a demon. Like, all of these crazy things. He'll say, I will judge whether or not any of that was worth it. Based on whether or not you all live as light in the darkness. What do you think about that? I mean, how do you judge whether the church is what it is? it's intended to be. Because apparently, at least from Paul here in this passage, whether the members 
are becoming more like Jesus by being lights in the midst of the world is his judgment. Now, let me try to bring this a little closer to home for us if I can. There's so many ways, so many things in this passage, and, and frankly, I, I just want to give credit where it's due. The entire reason we're, we're looking at this passage is because uh, Sam has been going through with, with uh, the staff, like he's, he's been leading us in staff devotions, and he got to this passage, uh, and it was, it was really one of those where we're like, wow, these are like Paul's last words, and that was like, oh, maybe I should just go ahead and preach on that one too. So I want to give Sam the credit on this one. But there are so many ways that we could go into this, but I, I just want to do two. And the first has to do with removing our blemish. I love the fact that in this passage, the, the concept of blemish is set in opposition to bearing the family resemblance. And to some degree, I, I think, I think, that's not just about a positional thing, but an attitudinal one. Here's what I mean. If you believe that you are bearing blemish, how likely are you to go out and to bear that resemblance by being light and darkness? Maybe better sense. One of the chief things that will keep you from bearing the family resemblance of Jesus is being enslaved by your shame. Because that, what that will say is, I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. Jesus' love for me isn't that true. I'm just lucky. I just got in on a whim. I tricked him. I, I'm worse than everyone else. Right? See, adoption is about being accepted, being wanted, being brought in, right? It's beautiful. It's, it's parents choosing a child. It's a beautiful thing. But blemish. I mean, what do we do with our blemishes? There's an entire industry made to cover them up. Right? Ladies? Guys? <laughs> Don't lie. Entire industry, we hide them. And we hide them because we're ashamed of them. And metaphorically, this idea of blemishes turns into that thought that we have. What would they do if they knew? How would they treat me if they knew about this blemish? Right? We cover them up because we go, I, I want to be received as I am ideally. Not as I am really. Right? So let me ask you, what is your blemish? What do you hide from others and try to cover up before God out of that fear? If they really knew, there's no way. There's no way I can love. Maybe for you it's, you know, something sexual in nature. Maybe it's a addiction to pornography. Maybe it's having sexual desires that you don't understand what to do with. Or maybe they didn't do understand. Maybe it's things you've done in the past. Maybe it's ways that you've been victimized, and yet, for some reason, it still lingers. It's like, I was victimized because there's something wrong with me. 
Maybe it's the way you view yourself because of things said over and over to you when you were younger. Maybe it's simply the reality that you are finite and there is no way you will be able to meet everyone's expectations. Right? A good film of blank would be able to do that. At least that's what you thought. And you cover these things because if people found out you're convinced they couldn't accept you, they couldn't love you, you hide these things because God would never love someone like that. Does this sound familiar? Maybe I'm the only one. Probably. But listen, this is what I need to hear, and I think what you need to hear comes right from this text. The blemish that Paul mentions here has nothing to do with your behavior. Do you see that? That blemish, that thing that keeps you from God's family, from looking like Him, from full acceptance, isn't whatever failure or issue you've got. It's simply not coming to Jesus. Being in Jesus removes that blemish. It removes it. I mean, listen. Okay, you're broken. Congratulations. Of course you are. If you weren't, Jesus wouldn't have had to come. Why do you pretend like you're not? Like it's like, I know Jesus saved a sinner like me, or like me ago. Not really like me. Right? Like we, we pretend, don't we? We pretend with each other. No, I don't, I don't mean. I'm not going to tell the truth to my small group. You know, I'm not going to tell the truth to my spouse. I'm not going to tell the truth to my kid. I certainly can't admit to my kids who I am. I mean, what would they think? I don't know. What would they think? Maybe that you just need a savior. Like they do. You think they don't know? Really? You think the people in your group don't know? Honestly. You think you're uh, really that good? You're the best at hiding, I know. But uh, do you honestly think they don't, they don't know? I know at the end of the day, you believe you are the exception. Right? That you are the one who is too broken for God to really accept you. That your brokenness is the brokenness that will just crack the people around you. That they won't be able to bear it. You alone. They can accept anyone else in the world except for you. Do you understand how crazy that is when someone actually verbalizes it? You're that bad? You're the one. You're the one. Out of everyone, you're, you're it. You know what's going to happen? You're going to share that stuff with them. You know what they're going to say? And? Let me tell you about me. Hold on. Like, that's, that's what happens. Of course you are broken. But God came in Jesus to purchase you with his blood. And Jesus knows what he bought. And he never has buyer's remorse. He never has buyer's remorse. The work of Christ is enough to remove not just our guilt, but our shame. And so the call to let go of our anxious doubts is simply because he's enough. He's enough. It's time to bring that shame into the light. To see that you were loved by God and accepted because of Christ, because it's in Jesus that your blemish is removed. And that brings us to this concept of directional salvation. And I'll be honest with you. Every 
time I speak about this, it's stuck in somebody's crawl. But, you know, I've got a track record to uphold, so here we go. Paul seems pretty clear about what he wants for the church, right? He's looking at this group of people whom he dearly loves as the one who labored and planted this congregation, who gave a portion of his life to it. And he's saying that there, was some, there is something that will show that his work was not in vain. And I think most of the time when we hear that, what we think is, is, is what, what we're thinking that he's wanting is simply for them to stay Christians and to not walk away from the faith. Right? My labor won't be in vain as long as you make it to the end. Listen, I'm not saying that that's not part of it. I mean, obviously, that's part of it. But that's not all. To work out your salvation is to look more and more like Jesus, more and more like the image of our older brother. But what does that look like? See, it's not enough to just say it looks like keeping your nose clean. Did Jesus have a clean nose? Yes. Was Jesus morally perfect? Absolutely. He was. It's not enough to say he had, you know, it's, it's about getting your theology straight. Did Jesus have good theology? Yeah. He wrote the book, right? Like, yes, he had great theology. He knew more than everyone else around him. He understood the scriptures, not just at the, the surface level, but, but how it dug into the heart. Yes, perfect. But is it really just about that? Is it really just about being a really, really good and nice group of people? Is it really about having good theology, good politics, good kids? To look like Jesus, look at me. To look like Jesus is not simply to look like his perfect life or his really good thinking perfection. It's to look like his mission. It's to look like his mission. That is why Paul, later in this letter, later in this letter, just, just a few verses down, will talk about his greatest aim in life is not this great religious track record he has, which he would say, I could put this against anybody and go, I'm better than you. He says, no, 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 that's all garbage. What does he want in his life? I want my life to look like the life of Jesus, where he, it, it looks like his death, where he gave everything he had to see other people flourish and reconcile with God. That's what I want my life to look like. If my life is going to be seen as anything worthy, it won't be because of all this stuff. Jew of Jews, tribe of Benjamin, sacri circumcised on the, not sacrifice, circumcised on the eighth day, like all this great stuff. That's the law, blameless. That's all that other stuff. He's, no, no. I want my life to look like his mission. If it does, oh, to know him. The power of his resurrection, the sharing of his sufferings, to be made to look like his death so that in some way I might participate in his resurrection. That's what he said. That's what I would see. He says it for his own life, and that's what he sees for his church. Do you know why Holy Cross is named Holy Cross? Because that. That was the ambition. A group of people willing to lay down their lives for the sake of this city. To lay down their lives for the flourishing of this community. To have the life of this church look like the life of Jesus. Which certainly 
and looked like loving one another? Yes. But it never ended there. It never ended there. Paul is linking the effectiveness of his ministry in whether or not the church of Philippi will keep bringing light into the world, moving into darkness, and helping see others come to know Jesus. Will you be lights in this world? Will you? You have been. Will you continue with it? Will you bear the resemblance of Jesus by being that in the community? Or will you build a wall? Will you build a wall and put that light under a basket and rage in a world gone dark? I can tell you this, and I say this every time we have a discoverer. I say, we didn't start Holy Cross, and so many people finish the rest of this life. We didn't start Holy Cross because we thought Stanley needed another church. But because we thought Stanley needed a different kind of church. Lots of folks get the wall building and the raging down path. You don't have to do that. They all got that coming. Can you be a light? Because Paul's implication is you cannot bear Jesus' resemblance without shining in the world. The good news is, it isn't you shining. It's never you shining. It's never any of us shining. It's God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Of course you don't know what to do. Of course you don't know what to say. Of course you don't know how to... I mean, you couldn't reconcile yourself to God better than other people. Right? There's no way. The good news is God's not asking you to. He's simply calling you to hold fast to his word, hold fast to his gospel, and take that out into your neighborhood, into your workplace, into your schools. And let him do the rest. You see, like Paul, I would say that as a church, you've always done this. As I've been present with you, you've always done this. And my confidence is that in my absence, you will do this all the more. Maturing as Christians, as a church even, means looking more and more like our Father, becoming more and more like our elder brother, bearing that family resemblance of a man who gave everything to see those who hated God reconciled. Would you pray? Jesus, we give you great praise because that is who you are. Someone who gave everything, who taken enemies. Ch those who were by nature children of wrath, us. And made them not just forgiven, not just friends, but family. What glorious grace is this. We praise you for that and ask, Lord, that you would be gracious to us, to keep us as a church continually seeking to mirror that in the world. We cannot do this. Everything in us, Lord, wants to pull us in ourselves. Don't let us do it. Have mercy on us, Jesus. Turn us out to a world in need. 
to a city, to a county, to neighbors, and, and peers in school, and coworkers in need. We ask this in Christ.